Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look inside the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, as MPs investigate sexism in the military, will promises of change be kept? It has no body that is independent and can actually look into defence. Defence marks its own homework, and this, I think, is the biggest issue. Despite the pandemic, deaths from terror attacks soared last year. We hear about new threats on the horizon. Growing online influence of far-right extremists, both in Europe and the US, um, we may also see continuing policy tensions in balancing free speech concerns and countering Islamist militancy. And why are some Commonwealth veterans struggling to get the right to stay in the UK? He kind of felt betrayed to be treated like that. You kind of think to yourself, oh, was, was that all worth it? Women make up just over one in 10 army personnel serving in a military which the MOD says has changed enormously in the last 30 years. The days when women were confined to non-combat roles and forced to leave if they got married or pregnant are over. But ministers admit there is still a long way to go. Now a new inquiry seeks to shine a light on what it's like to be a woman serving in the armed forces. Its first sitting of a defence subcommittee heard from Diane Allen, who served in the army for 30 years and who last year said the military needed its own Me Too moment. There is a very mixed messaging with the complaint system where um, commanding officer levels, so unit levels, are encouraged um, to uh, turn a blind eye and to actually discourage people from reporting Problems. More than 4,000 women have submitted evidence ahead of the inquiry, many talking about a hostile environment if they try to complain about bullying or harassment. The MOD is promising to carefully consider the inquiry's findings, admitting that on too many occasions, defence failed to provide adequate support. Well, Paula Edwards is from Salute Her, part of the veterans' charity Forward Assist. She's also given evidence to the inquiry and joins me now. Uh, Paula, thank you for your time today. When you speak to women veterans, how often do you hear about bullying or abuse as a trigger for leaving the forces? I have over 600 women that are registered with my service and it would be fair to say that over half of those women have left their service early because of how they've been made to feel, mistreatment, bullying, sexual assault and there's a whole host of reasons but usually it's because the issue um, hasn't been dealt with in the manner that it should be. Yes, and when people talk about a hostile environment to complaints, what does that mean in practice? So I can give an example of a woman um, who has maybe been raped in service. That woman makes a complaint and, and follows the process going to the chain of command. Then it all starts going wrong for that woman. So that woman is often made to feel like she's to blame, that she deserved it. She doesn't get given the advice that she, she needs. Often that woman isn't given any um, rape screening. And then a lot of the women just lose trust in a system that's meant to be there to protect them. And these are the women that have just had the confidence to actually speak out that you've met. Um, you raised the issue of a lack of confidence among women in the military justice system. Is the solution to improve that or to hand it over to civilian systems, do you think? I think that it has to be handed over to civilian systems. if. The military has failed to protect you then that woman often feels like the rest of the investigation um, isn't going to be, be done in the way that it needs to be done 
so she feels like she's not going to get any justice she can't trust the system she's made her feel like she's a perpetrator instead of the victim a lot of women feel like if they went to a civilian um, police force that it would be investigated differently because they're not trying to protect the military, they're trying to protect the survivor. The MOD says that the majority of women have long and fulfilling careers in the military. Is that your experience? Some of the women that I work with do have fulfilling careers and have a a long career, but the majority of women that I work with have shorter careers and leave the service. Um, early and prematurely. There have been past investigations and reports into discrimination of all kinds in the military and there have been promises of change too. How optimistic are you that this time things might be different? All the cards have been laid on the table really for the military um, and for the MOD and they know what the issues are now. They've heard the brutal honest truth of um, all the issues that affect women, including discrimination, sexual assault, bullying, um, for them not to do anything now would be really difficult for them. I think that they need to do something and I think they will start making little changes, but it won't come quick enough. I think this needs to be done in a really timely manner to prevent women feeling unsafe at work because they are in employment, so they should be kept safe while they're there. What single change do you think would make the biggest difference? I think having independent people being placed within the military to help women and men understand what the difference between right and wrong, have a safe place to go, learn how to protect yourself. Um, I think that you need that independence within there so that change can occur. I think if we don't have some sort of independence, Um, and have civilians or a civilian police force investigate or civilian therapists going into the military, I think the problem's just going to continue. I don't think it will change. Paula Edwards, good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. Well, also with me is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael Clark, one thing to emerge from these first sessions is the feeling that change has to come from the top and that that will need a big shift in attitudes among some leaders. Yes, the armed forces, as we say so often on this programme, are a reflection of society in general, about the, you know, the broader society from which it's drawn. And clearly change has got to come from the top. Although I would sort of caveat that a little bit by saying that the, at the very top, at the level of the chiefs, there's no, there's no problem there as such. I mean, their attitudes are completely sympathetic to what Paula Edwards was, was saying. The top in this respect is really a couple of ranks below that or a couple of levels below that. The problem is that individuals, they don't, their instinct is to try not to cover up issues, but to try to smooth them out. They don't want to be sending upwards through the chain of command, you know, big problems that they haven't dealt with themselves. And so there's a tendency for them not to deal with things properly, and certainly not, as Paula said, to bring in outsiders. But the, the military know that because they're having to change a lot in the next 10 years, they've got to open themselves up much more to external external assessment and external um, audit and scrutiny on things like this, on racial and and gender issues. There does seem to be a problem, though, doesn't it, that, uh, as Paula was saying, that although she can see what the solutions might be, they might just not come quickly enough. Yes, well, they'll need to come fairly quickly because um, we're now talking about a transformational British military system um, which will transform itself a lot in the next decade. 
Uh, and if they're going to attract the sort of people that they want from professional society, if they want the, you know, the, the bright young men and women in their late teens and early 20s to think that the military is a really good career and one that will set them up for the rest of their lives in their 30s and 40s, then they really do have to modernise their attitudes towards some of these things. I mean, I think they get it, but I'm not sure they get it all the way down the, the line, if you see what I mean. And that, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge to the military. Michael, stay with us. Now, 2020 was a year year of worldwide lockdown. So in a way, it shouldn't be surprising that there was a fall in the number of terrorist attacks. But despite this, new research says there was a rise of almost one fifth in the number of deaths linked to terrorist activity, more than 17,000. In some areas, terror groups ordered pandemic ceasefires. In others, they tried to boost support by helping with health care. Kate Cox is a senior analyst at Jane's and she told me that the figures show Afghanistan was by far the deadliest country on earth with close to two and a half thousand attacks. More than half of all attacks in 2020 have been recorded in Afghanistan, Ukraine and Syria. Afghanistan um, takes the, the top spot for our trends analysis from 2020, both in terms of the number of attacks and the number of fatalities. Um, so this trend is largely driven by Taliban attacks targeting security forces, especially following a, a peace deal that was signed with the, the US government back in February 2020. Does it suggest your data that IS is re-emerging as a force, a credible threat to Western countries? Indeed, our analysis shows that um, IS is not only re-emerging, but it's also um, shifting its regional focus with um, a growing reach in West Africa and the Sahel and in Central Africa, um, so signalling new targeting and territorial strategy as well. You obviously have found that the number of deaths has risen significantly, but the number of operational attacks, as you say, hasn't. Um, does the pandemic have anything to do with that at all? And if not, has it had any impact on terrorist activity? Our um, global attack index for 2020 has identified a number of militant response trends in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, with three that we've drawn out in particular. So first, uh, a perhaps surprising trend is the decision of some militant groups to prioritise health concerns over their own violent agendas um, by announcing temporary ceasefires. So looking at groups like the ELN in Colombia and coordinating with, with aid workers in their territories. So as we can see in the case of the Taliban, for example. Beyond this, a second trend that we've highlighted in our analysis is um, militant exploitation of the pandemic to enhance health governance roles in their areas of control, um, as seen in the case of Hezbollah in Lebanon, for example. And a third development that we've pulled out is um, the weaponization of the virus to not only undermine opponents, but also to enlist recruits and to spread fear and unrest, as we're seeing in the case of UK far-right activists and other actors in other parts of the world, including Yemen's Houthis, who have um, exploited sc school closures to recruit Yemeni youth into newly opened camps. To what extent do you think um, that those strategies that have developed during the pandemic are just temporary? Um, we've definitely seen that some of these ceasefires, so the first trend mentioned, have been temporary in nature um, and have crumbled in the latter part of the year. And indeed, there's been a UN report released recently that signals that the Islamic State is calling for increased attacks following the easing of, of restrictions on movements. So we can certainly see some reversals in these trends already emerging.
from your research, how do you think the situation will develop globally over the next year? So what we're seeing is the growing online influence of far-right extremists, both in the in Europe and the US, and particularly given the impact of COVID-19 on time spent on social media. So this is something that we're likely to continue to see. Um, we may also see continuing policy tensions in balancing free speech concerns and countering Islamist militancy, so reflecting 2020 debates in France, for example. Looking beyond Europe and the US, we're likely to see Ansar Allah continuing to direct attacks at Saudi oil targets at sea. And in Africa, there's a high risk of further expansion of conflicts in the Sahel and West Africa, including a, a continued northwestern push by the Islamic State's West Africa province in Nigeria, along with a continued threat in Mozambique and by the ADF in the DRC. That was Kate Cox from Jane's. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, it almost sounds like some terror groups saw the pandemic as a way to boost their PR by helping with healthcare. Yes, quite a lot of terror groups uh, actually do that, but depending on what their aims are. But um, one of the objectives of a terrorist campaign is to be seen by a local people in areas you influence to be the only effective group that can do things. I mean, I remember we saw this in uh, Pakistan during the, the disastrous Pakistani floods of a few years ago. The Pakistani army was so hopeless at, at coming in with aid and dealing with it that the Pakistani Taliban actually became the distributors of aid. And of course, that's what local people remember, that when, the, the, when there was real difficulty, when they really needed help on the ground, it was those people, it was that group, not the government, that came to help us. And indeed, I mean, as, as uh, Kate Cox was saying, the, the, the fact that the pandemic, partly it was seen by a lot of jihadist groups as God's judgment on the world, it also had the effect of, of putting more people in front of their screens for longer. So the effect of, of deepening the commitment to terrorism of all sorts has increased over the last 12 months. She also flagged up the rise of the far right online. Is that something we're fully prepared to counter? Uh, beginning to, for sure. I mean, in Britain, the far right, it's known as XRW, the extreme right wing. XRW accounts for about between a quarter and a third of all terrorist incidents and terrorist arrests or arrests for potential terrorist crimes. In the United States, it's uh, about 65%. I mean, the majority of American terrorist concerns are with the far right. Um, much, much bigger problem there than it is here. But here, whereas it was a tiny part of the picture 10 years ago, is now actually a significant part of the picture, I mean, between a quarter and a third. And of course, all of that reflects, in a way, the success of jihadism in actually stimulating the far right, in creating exactly the backlash that they wanted. Because what jihadism tries to do is to polarise society. And the worry is not just that these terrorist groups exist, but that, that societies in the West are becoming more polarised after 20 years of jihadist pressure. This is Sitrep. Now this week, the Queen praised the courage, commitment and selfless dedication to duty of those on the front line of the response to the coronavirus pandemic across the Commonwealth. The forces have, of course, played a key role, but are personnel from the Commonwealth being treated fairly when they leave? Campaigners say those who want to stay in the UK after service face a huge financial burden. Among those demanding a change is England rugby star Joe Vakanasenga, whose father was forced to return to Fiji after 14 years in the Royal Logistic Corps. Rosie Layden takes up his story. <laughs> 
Fijian choir singing to celebrate completing their British Army training last summer. In 2020, there were 5,110 Commonwealth citizens serving in the armed forces, and each year around 400 former Commonwealth veterans and their families applied to stay in the UK. But visa fees have risen sharply, from around £150 in 2003 to £2,389 per person today. Joe Baker is the campaign's manager for the Royal British Legion. So with a family of four, um, say a spouse and two children, that could cost almost £10,000. So it's an awful lot of money for a family to expect to have to pay um, in order to stay in a country which they've often sacrificed a great deal to serve and relocated to serve. So the Royal British Legion is calling on the government to abolish those fees. And what kind of impact are these charges having on the veterans that you speak to? As you say, it's quite a lot of money people in the armed forces community have been left struggling so we had cases where a member of the commonwealth who'd left the armed forces put the fees onto their credit card they then um, defaulted on the credit card payment they couldn't pay their rent and they ended up living in their car um, we've had cases of um, where families have been split up because um, someone's had to go back to the country that they came from such as in joe's family but the rest of the family have now settled um, and are in school and, and, and have jobs. So um, it can have a real, dev really devastating impact on the lives of the people this is affecting. My name is Joe Bakanasinger. Joe has nine caps for England and is described by his club side Bath as one of the most exciting wingers in the world. His father, Elatia, spent 14 years in the British Army, but the family was separated last year when he was forced to return to Fiji to apply for permanent residency. He kind of felt betrayed I think that's, that's one of the words that pop out but you know like he'd, he'd, he'd done really he'd invested a lot of you know his life and our life pretty, my whole my whole life pretty much army and then to be treated like that it's you know you, you kind of think to yourself oh was was that all worth it and what did it mean for you and the family when your father actually had to go back to Fiji which meant obviously you couldn't be together what made it a lot a lot harder was you know my mum was going through her brain tumour um, treatment so you know it made it a lot harder with the family being apart and then obviously with Covid and stuff we couldn't really be, be together so it made it obviously made it a lot harder but um, you know stuff like that just makes 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 the whole family stronger. And in fact it partly your own experience and through realising there was others in a similar situation that's persuaded you to get behind this campaign? At first, I wanted we wanted to keep it private because we're, we're I know we're quite a private family, um, and then I found out what well, we found out there was other families going for the same thing, and I felt I was obliged to you know kind of help push and be that voice for everyone else. A government spokesperson said the Home Office and Ministry of Defence work closely with our non-UK recruits to make sure they're fully aware of how they and their families can settle in the UK and the costs involved. The Ministry of Defence also said they're launching a public consultation to offer greater flexibility to serving personnel in the future. But the Legion say they think the visa fees are unfair and they urge the government to take action.
That report by Rosie Layden. Now, it's well over a year since Boris Johnson ordered an integrated review of defence, security and foreign policy. After repeated delays and a great deal of speculation, we're finally about to find out what it says. It's expected to bring big changes to the size and makeup of the forces and a renewed focus on the Indo-Pacific region. But the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, speaking in Estonia, insisted Britain's commitment to allies in Europe won't be watered down. Perhaps the best evidence of that commitment is our uh, enduring commitment on European defence and security. We feel very much that Estonia's security is our security uh, and we're committed to that. The British troops that are here in Estonia, the 850, uh, I think are testament to that commitment and they're not going anywhere. Well, Professor Michael Clark has kept an eye on the review. Uh, Michael, we already know a lot about what's going to be announced. A big switch to cyber and AI cuts to regular forces. It seems the voices warning against a smaller army have lost the argument. Yes, um, I have to say, I feel as if I've been following this man and boy. It's gone on for so long. I've, I've sort of lived my life in this shadow of this blessed review. But we are going to see it next week. The first tranche of it will be announced on Tuesday and then the real defence guts of it the following week. And it is pretty clear that the army is going to come out of this review fairly slimmed down. I mean, remember that the army went into this review as the last of the three services to re-equip, the last to rethink its role, really. And we know from you know what's been circulating around the MOD that the army was it was rebuffed the first time. They, they sent it away, as it were, come back with some bigger ideas. There, there was criticism that the army was not being ambitious enough in the way it was going to be reformed. But it does look as if the army will have the biggest weight of transformation placed on its slimmed-down shoulders, because we already know what the what the Navy's going to look like because of announcements already made. We've got a pretty good idea what the RAF will look like, although I think the RAF will be taking some quite painful cuts as well. But the Army is the, the one of the three services that will have to adapt and adjust itself more significantly than the other two. And how significant is it that the Chief of the Defence Staff is now staying on until November? Yeah, I mean, that's entirely sensible because uh, Nick Carter's seen a lot of this through. Um, it's important because other things are changing. The permanent undersecretary at the MOD is moving to be national security advisor. There's, a, there's cha other changes taking place in the middle of Whitehall. So while that is going on, I mean, yet more changing with the guard within this very sort of turbulent government, it's even more important that the chief of the defence staff stays on. And the fact that the that the Chief of Defence Staff is a soldier, I think will also be quite important in selling to everybody else what the army is going to have to try to do as a result of this review. Yeah, selling, selling to the nation, the armed forces, but also to Britain's allies. How do you avoid causing alarm in Washington or at NATO HQ? Well, that's what Dominic Raab is trying to do today um, in Estonia and in, in the Baltic areas to, to reassure our NATO allies that all this modernisation is to NATO's good. And in theory, it is. But two things. One is that we've got to see this modernization and transformation. And these, these things take a few years. And so we've got to convince them that we are, we're serious about this and that we will see it through, not just announce it and let it all dribble into the sand in two or three years' time. And secondly, I mean, our allies know that numbers matter. If you're going down to much smaller forces, and in some cases we will, we, we will have significantly smaller forces in some areas, 
there is always this question that you you end up being or you can end up being too small to be strategically significant you can be useful you can be respected but not strategically significant because your forces aren't big enough to make a real difference and so the government will have to convince our allies particularly washington that the the lack of numbers will not matter because we'll have world-class forces that are so well trained and so modern etc etc that they'll make a strategic difference i wish it well i really do but it will be a neat trick if we can do that. Yeah, and when ministers do talk about global Britain, what in practice does that actually mean? And, and will that change, do you think? Well, I think global Britain I mean, is, is entirely sensible in one sense. This idea of a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, which is really the Indian Ocean and, and our friends in the Pacific, I mean, all of that is entirely sensible because we want to build better partnerships, new partnerships with Japan and South Korea and India and our existing friends in Southeast Asia, including countries like Vietnam, for instance, which is a communist country, but is, is very friendly. But if we're going to say it, we've got to be able to do it. And the more we do it, the more we've also got to demonstrate that uh, our commitment to European defence is not weakening. As I say, I mean, that will be, that's quite a challenge for the next 10 years. And I'm not entirely certain that although the MOD gets it, I'm not entirely certain that the government really understands or has fully appreciated the, uh, the enormity of what the Global Britain label really implies what they're really taking on here. And since the review was ordered, we've had the pandemic, how does that alter the assumptions behind the review? It's made some differences, for sure. I mean, one of the assumptions that we'll see in the review more than we might otherwise is resilience. The uh, the pandemic has made it pretty clear that we were over-dependent on supplies from certain countries, mainly China, for our PPE. So the issue of resilience has come back onto the agenda. And I think now countries around the world are trying to become more resilient in all of their supply chains, not just on medical and uh, protective equipment, but in other ways as well. So the pandemic, I think, has been a sort of a wake-up call to how vulnerable some uh, critical national infrastructures really are. And, Michael, if reports are to be believed, Boris Johnson is getting his own new high-tech toy, a British version of the White House Situation Room. What do you know about that? Yes, and this has been a, an idea for a long time. It's entirely sensible as long as you put the right things into it. So it's an attempt to bring together in one place real-time information that otherwise you, one would have to send out to different departments for. So the government's trying to get on top of the digital age by saying, OK, if we've standardised our information around Whitehall, if we're all using the same sort of information, then let's let's give ourselves the capacity to pull it together in one room really quickly when we need to. So it's an entirely sensible idea. We'll see how well it works because it will bring together genuinely important stuff and that the important people will be there when they have to make decisions. And that's the, that's the objective of the whole thing. And finally today, to Germany, where the coronavirus vaccine rollout continues among the British forces community. Only a few hundred remain, mostly at the Sanilaga Training Centre. But the last year has been tough, with restrictions in both Germany and Britain making it hard to return to the UK to see families. From Sanilaga, Rob Olver. Sanilaga is Britain's largest military training ground in continental Europe. In the pandemic, keeping the centre's staff and visiting troops safe has been a top priority. Senelaga now has its own Covid testing facility. As the commander of the British Army in Germany, Colonel Tim Hill is ultimately responsible for safety. If we got it wrong and if we had a, a sort of a huge outbreak and we clearly were, we were not on top of our game and keeping, keeping a lid on things, then we could have come under uh, considerable pressure and, and quite rightly so. 
Colonel Hill says that the big challenge has been implementing ever-changing rules. It's meant sticking to the strictest British and German regulations. He acknowledges that for military personnel and families based here, it's been difficult. With all the many COVID restrictions that are in place that restrict that travel and free movement between uh, ourselves here and the UK. It's not easy to go and visit families and friends because there's quarantine and there's all sorts of restrictions on movement that are in place. Michelle Hall is a member of the Royal Voluntary Service. When the pandemic struck, she was about to end a two-year posting in Germany. I was all ready to go with everything packed up and uh, then Covid happened and uh, was unable to leave. Couldn't get my stuff sent out with removals. So we kind of made a decision with the management of the company that I would stay until such times as uh, things became more back to normal. And here we are almost a year later and still in the same position. People who got it worse are obviously the single guys that are in camp. Lance Corporal David Thornton serves with 2-3 Amphibious Engineer Squadron. The sappers bridge stretches of water and uniquely work as part of a German army unit. They can't get home. They can't even go downtown and have a beer you know, socialise downtown, and they're stuck in their own little bubble. These days, leisure for single soldiers often means the squadron pool table or TV room. As a senior welfare officer, Tim Hopkins knows all about life under COVID restrictions. I make sure that I touch base with all of the subunits here, so we're getting a little bit of feeding from everywhere about what's going on in their particular area. But we're very lucky. Our patch is all together, so there's no isolation. All the community lives within three kilometres of camp. We all know each other. We all go to the same shop, the NAFI. It's good that we've got the connectivity that you probably don't get outside. The pandemic has prompted virtual town hall meetings for Senelaga's 700-strong forces community. There are also Zoom coffee mornings and online bingo. Not to mention socially distanced running and housing estate bake-offs. Lindsay McCran is the local Army Families Federation representative. I've been absolutely, um, yeah, really impressed by the resilience. Children, uh, families, you know, we've had babies born in this lockdown as well. And yeah, people have been inventive and um, very resilient and, and looked after each other here. Bob Olver with that report. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.